0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. The section we're going to be looking at in particular is verses 17 through 19. But I want you to back up to verse 7 first, because this is the only other place in the book where Leadership is really mentioned, and there's a tie between verse 7 and 17 to 19. Verse 7 Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17 Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we've been seeing that there are some uh, persecution issues that are going on. People are considering going back to Judaism, abandoning Christianity, which is becoming increasingly unpopular within the larger culture. And I would guess that that kind of persecution would increase stress within the body of Christ. And some of you are working with groups that are actively being persecuted, and maybe you could confirm that. So they're under stress from outside And whenever you have that kind of stress, any kind of um, difficulty or awkwardnesses within the body would be exacerbated by that pressure from outside. So it's possible that there is some kind of tension between the leadership of the church and the sheep within the congregation. We don't know that for a fact, but it's possible and seems highly likely if they are people like us, which I think they were. And so these instructions are not surprising, but these are the last instructions, kind of like the last thought that he has before he signs off. And this is what we're looking at today. So if I were to give a title for the sermon, it would be something like, who is responsible to whom for whom? And that's just because you hardly ever get to say the word whom, and so I throw that in twice. We're looking at the watched and the watchers. So there are two groups of people that are in view here. Those who are being watched and those who are doing the watching. And as I thought about our body of believers here at CCF, I realized that we have a kind of an unusual congregation in that we have a number of watchers that are here. But at the same time, you're all also being watched by your leadership. So, I'd like to ask you to just think about your own spheres and try to figure out what sphere you're in or at what point you're in this watching or being watched sphere. Do you keep watch over other people's souls? In your... Sphere in your ministry, are you responsible for other people's souls? Husbands for their wives, parents for your children. Are you a teacher like I am? Are you responsible for your words to those that you speak? Missionaries for your disciples. Those might be some categories in which you find yourself, in some way or another, as a watcher. But are you also under someone else's care, under someone else's watch? All of us are under Pastor Tim's care, his watch, the elders of CCF. What about your home churches? Maybe there is somebody who is watching over you from that sphere, And perhaps some of you have some kind of oversight, and I'm not sure if we would equate this to church leadership, but you find yourself under the care of people in your organization, whatever that might be. So, I would guess that most of us, if we thought about it for a while, would find ourselves both as watched and watchers. So, really, both sides of this passage are going to be applicable in some way or another. You just have to keep shifting which sphere you're in as we go through the passage. Remember your leaders. This is verse 7. And then the same word shows up again in verse 17 leaders. This is kind of an unusual word, it doesn't show up very often in the text. It's not the word for pastor, it's not the word for elder. It's just those who have the charge over you. It's not an official word. It's not an official uh, title that they might have been assigned. It's more just the people who, in the course of how this community is working out and living with each other and being responsible for each other, these are the people that would have eventually arisen to a place where they're looked to as the leaders in the congregation. It's not something they were voted to. They probably have character. They're probably recognized as being filled with the Spirit. They're probably recognized as being mature in their faith. And some of the other characteristics that Paul describes for leaders elsewhere. But these were people that were in a position that had responsibility and the people looked up to them. And they're commended to obey them. Most of the English translations use the word obey here. Um, The leaders that he's referring back to in verse 7 are the leaders that had been there earlier and are not there anymore. He's using the same word now to refer to current leaders who are looking over the congregation. And when he says obey, it's an interesting word. The idea is, and we'll see it again later in the text, the idea is to be persuaded by. It's not um, kind of like the leader gives commands and everybody says, yes, sir. Uh, it is a, a persuasive kind of thing. It is, it's be persuaded by. Allow yourself to be influenced by these people. Um, the idea is that out of respect, out of honor um, for their position, you allow yourself to be persuaded by them. It's not a, an obey orders kind of word. It's a more of a nuanced kind of it's coming from you, not from them. It's from yourself. You're submitting yourself to them. You're obeying them. Be persuaded by your leaders and submit to them. Now here, submit to them is a little bit stronger word. It's more like what we would think of put yourself under. But again, it's more of a passive thing where you are the one doing it yourself. These are instructions that are not given to the leaders, incidentally. They're given to those who are being watched. And so the instructions come to those who are under the care of these leaders. Be persuaded by them. Submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. Here, the writer is asking them to consider the position of their leaders. To put themselves in their shoes. Think about what their situation is. As you're allowing yourself to be persuaded by them, as you're submitting to them... Even though you might not feel like it because there's a lot of stuff going on and maybe you feel like they don't understand, you need to submit yourself to them. Why? Well, here's why. Here's what you need to think about from their perspective. They are keeping watch over your souls. Can you think of where that keeping watch over. Have you heard that phrase before in the Bible? Think Christmas time. Who are keeping watch over the shepherds? Now, if you're a shepherd and you've got a bunch of sheep out there and it's dark, they're keeping watch over their flocks by night. This is the picture that's being described here in Hebrews. You're living in a country that's very hilly, very rugged, lots of rocks, and at this point in time, lots of wild animals who are hungry and fancy mutton and you're the shepherd now do you think okay for 15 minutes I'm going to go to sleep and just cross my fingers no it's dark you have to be listening you know when, when there's a, a power outage and all the lights go out before everybody turns on their cell phone that's how dark it is in Israel no electricity nothing So at nighttime, when the sun goes down, in fact, no one can work, except for the the nasty creatures with night vision goggles that come out and find your sheep. So you have to be awake. You have to have your eyes open, your ears open especially, and listening. It's an idea of tireless vigilance that never lets up. Because as soon as you do, something's going to sneak in and grab a sheep. And so this is the word that he's using to describe the position of those who have the charge over you, that are watching over your souls. It is a tireless, relentless watching. It is vigilant. And the word often shows up in um, eschatological senses. Look at Ephesians 6.18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all Perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. That's the word there. Keep alert with all perseverance. Look again at Second Corinthians six five. This is where um, Paul is talking about different obstacles: beatings, imprisonments, riotless riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. The word there, sleepless nights, is the same idea. You never go to sleep. You're always awake. He's describing how the leaders in their congregation are feeling, what their responsibility is, where they have to be constantly awake, tireless, vigilant. And then look at Acts 20. Verse 25. And now behold, I, have no, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Here Paul is saying goodbye. Goodbye for the last time to the people in Ephesus. Ephesus, where he spent several years teaching and living and preaching and making tents. He was there for a long time. He's stopping by on his way to Rome. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. It's the same word. Pay careful attention to... to admonish everyone with tears. And again, here Paul is painting for us a very uh, graphic picture of the care of the church that he mentions elsewhere. The leaders who are responsible for the flock of God cannot sleep. They have to be vigilant. They have to be alert. They have to be aware of false teaching, false teachers that are coming in to snatch away sheep from the flock. And so when the writer to the Hebrews says, Submit yourselves to them. Allow yourself to be persuaded by them. They have your best interest in mind. In fact, they never go to sleep thinking and praying for you. Now, not literally, they never go to sleep. But the idea is that they're always awake. They're always paying attention for you. And so you should submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls. Now this word soul... Uh, has a very broad semantic range. It could mean a lot of different things. And fortunately, the writer to Hebrews uses this word more than once, and so you can look at what he thinks the semantic range of this word soul is. So look at Hebrews 4. In some places, this word soul could just mean like people. You might be doing a count and you say there were 16 souls. Now, that doesn't mean you're counting the immaterial things. You're just counting bodies. But I don't think that's exactly the, the breadth of this word that the writer to Hebrews has in mind. If you look at 4.12, a very familiar passage. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so... This this spirit uses the word of God to divide between soul and spirit. So for the, the writer here, he's seeing this word as something that is to be distinct from spirit. He has something in mind, something specific. Look at 619. For we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And here he's talking about our spiritual um, well-being, the idea that um, because Jesus Christ has gone before us, we have hope for our soul. because Jesus Christ has already gone beyond the veil, He is able to be our high priest. And then 10:39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith, and preserve their souls. And here it's kind of a, a contrast between being destroyed eternally or the preserving our souls. So again it's the idea of spiritual um, well-being, something that is core and essential to our person. not just some psychological description of your, your subconscious, but of something much more um, whole referring to your uh, well-being before God. Consider him who endured from this is uh, Hebrews 12:3 Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted And here it's faint-souled is really the, the we don't say it like that we say faint-hearted but again he's talking about some kind of um, eternal significance well-being So the the leaders have very high responsibility. They're obligated to pay attention all the time, to be constantly vigilant for false teachers to come in, for people to be led astray. They're tireless. They're praying for you. And they care about your souls. They care about you reaching the end of your spiritual journey. If they have this tremendous responsibility, and many of you feel it yourselves as watchers. Then, why wouldn't you submit to them? Why wouldn't you allow yourself to be persuaded by them? As the the admonishment that he's giving to these leaders. And not only are they watching over you tirelessly like shepherds over their sheep, but they're doing this as those who will give an account. This is an interesting phrase here is the idea of giving out words. You know, you have to speak up. You have to explain yourself. We don't talk too much about judgment, about explaining ourselves. Uh, Once we die, everything's all done. It's all good. and It's all happy. And it can be. But there's a lot that Scripture has to say about giving account. Look at Matthew chapter 12 People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, we could discuss whether or not this is referring to non believers before the great white throne or believers before the Bema seat of Christ. Uh, But the idea here is that there is going to be giving, you're going to give an account. And this is the same word that's used um, here in Hebrews it's the idea of standing before someone and explaining yourself. Another example is in Luke 16:2 the parable of the, the steward. And this is, a, this is more like we would think of giving an accounting uh, in, in specific accounting terms. 162 uh, turn in verse one to give it the context. He also said to his disciples, "There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him, and this man was wasting his possessions." And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And here, this this same word is used to explain a situation in which you have to compare reality to what you're saying. And this is the word that is being used here by the writer to Hebrews, that your leaders know that they will need to give an accounting. And then again, in Romans 14... Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Same word. Each of us will be giving an account to God. And then probably one of my least favorite verses in the Bible. James chapter 3. I teach theology. And one of my students asked me one time, what are some of the dangers of systematic theology? And I've heard a lot of dangers of studying systematic theology. uh, But this is one of the ones that I tell them about. James chapter 3, 1 and 2. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. That's my verse for job security. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. It's interesting to me that this whole passage of James about the tongue is actually prefaced by a warning to teachers. The idea of being careful as to what you say when you're preaching, when you're teaching, because we're going to give an account, and we're going to be judged with stricter judgment. We image God with our words, so we should be careful what we say about Him. Now, these are all verses that, that remind us that each one of us will give an account at some level, and your leaders are sensible to the idea that they too will give an account. So here is this, this long, basically, uh, appeal for sympathy for the leaders. It starts out with, let yourself be persuaded by them, obey them, and submit to them. Why? Because they're tirelessly watching over your souls as those who will give an account. And so why wouldn't you submit yourself to them? So that... They can do this with joy and not with groaning. Some of your translations will make a break here. And it will say, um, you need to obey them, kind of repeating the verb again, so that they can do this with joy and not with groaning. And that's not necessarily a bad translation, but it's not there in the original. The idea here is this big, long, glorious, run-on sentence. The biblical writers didn't have to worry about punctuation. There was no such thing. So they could just go on and on, and they'd link all these phrases together. And when you translate it into English, it looks like terrible writing. Because now you want to be succinct, you want to be to the point, get your ideas all in one spot, but they didn't do that. So if you were to read verse 17 a little bit closer to how it was written, it's this big, long, run-on sentence, but it's all describing the leader's the command is, be persuaded by those who rule over you and submit to them for, and then here's this big long run on, for they are staying tirelessly alert over your souls as those who themselves will give out words in order that they may do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. It's All of that is describing what's going through the leader's mind. What is your pastor struggling with? What is the weight on his shoulders? And that's all a... a uh, A reminder to the sheep to think about their responsibility. And of course, for those of us who find ourselves in watching positions, this is also our responsibility. To think about our obligation to be watching over their souls tirelessly. Because we will give an account. And we want to do it with joy and not with groaning. The word here, joy, is just your basic kara. If you look at 3 John 4, it's a good description of of how that word often functions. 3 John, verse 4. Here is a leader at the end of his life, John, writing to some of his little children. And he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Many of you can relate to that. To to go back to a place to meet someone that you've worked with in the past and to hear them tell their stories about the growth of their church or the maturity of their ministry or things that they've struggled with and they've been victorious, there's no greater joy than hearing those things. And this is this is probably what's in the writer to the Hebrews his mind as well where he's thinking just let them do it with joy with great joy because you have been persuaded by them, because you have submitted to them and you have listened to their care and their counsel and you've not been led astray and you persevere in the truth. That will give them great joy. Submit to them. Obey them. Be persuaded by them so that they can do this with joy and not groaning. This is a powerful word for groaning. Uh, It's kind of like a a very oppressed sigh or moan. And to to see the power of this word, look at Romans chapter 8.23. Romans 8.23. And not only the creation, he's talking here about the effects of Adam's rebellion. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. We have part of our redemption, but yet we're not fully redeemed. We're waiting for the glorification of our bodies, and we groan. As I get older, I groan more. But it's not just that kind of groaning. It is the, the, the spiritual oppression that comes from constantly struggling against not just our physical body, but our fallen nature that still crops up and we want to, to be redeemed from that so that we can experience true freedom which is doing exactly what we were created to do another instance of this groaning is 2nd Corinthians 5 same context really here 2nd Corinthians 5 verse 1 for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed another way to talk about your body we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. This, this longing for something better. There's another passage where Jesus groans or sighs, and it's at the, the spiritual hard heartedness of the people around him. So as they give accounting, In some context, possibly before the Bema Seat of Christ. They can do it with joy because they've been walking in the truth. They've been protected from false teachers. They have persevered. They have buffeted their body daily, as Paul says. Or they can do it with groaning. Groaning that is descriptive of an intense sadness at the rebellion of the sheep and the consequences that have come from it. And I would guess in the writer of the Hebrews, his mind would be those that have left Christianity and have gone back to the safer, more comfortable Judaism. Abandoning the, the true high priest, Jesus Christ, would bring about groaning. It's not really clear here um, that the joy or the groaning is something like this where my sheep did well so I get brownie points and so I'm happy. Or my sheep did badly and so I'm in trouble because they did badly and so now I'm groaning. That's not really clear in the text. And if we look at um, Ezekiel, we have a, a little bit of an idea as to how God works this out. Ezekiel chapter 3 is the instructions given to Ezekiel given to Um, The watchman. Ezekiel 3, verse 17. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way. In order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his own iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked ways, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. So here, the obligation is on warning, being a faithful watcher, And giving warning to those who need the warning. That's your responsibility as a watcher. And the consequences for their behavior falls on the one who acted correctly or incorrectly. Not on you. So I think that within the the justice of God here, the groaning and the joy is the emotional uh, response of the leaders who are looking out for you. And seeing you persevere in the truth, that gives them great joy. But if you don't, then there's groaning, there's sighing, there's there's uh, intense disappointment. The final phrase is, for that will not be profitable for you. Or that would be of no advantage to you. Because you're responsible as a watched Person, you're responsible for your own disobedience or your own obedience. But it still can make your leaders joyful or groan. This giving accounting brings us to the idea of is God a just judge? We believe that God is just, we believe that God is opposed to injustice, and usually. At least from my thinking we think of that in negative terms that is he'll punish those who are doing unjustly or he will require that people act justly. I, one of my favorite passages that that really paints the justice of God and, and and God is so good at this. You know, he gives us these words. He says I am just. But because God is not like any one of us perfectly this Language that we use to talk about God is an allegory. It's allegorical language. And that means that, yes, we understand what justice means, but when you apply the word justice to God, how just is he? And instead of just using a different font and bold-facing it, underlining it and say, I am very just, he tells us a story. And the story is a, a very interesting one, where Abraham has been waiting for a child, and God shows up with two angels and he says, you're going to have a child. And of course, Sarah laughs, thinks that's hilarious. And frankly, if you're 89 years old and someone tells you you're going to be pregnant, you probably would laugh too. Um, maybe a nervous laugh, I don't know. By the time you're 89, you're like, I'm not sure I really want to do that. It doesn't matter. You're going to have a child. And then right after that, it's a strange connection But right after that, God talks to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I don't know about you, but baby announcement and fire and brimstone and Sodom and Gomorrah, they just don't go together. I don't know how many of you have announced the baby coming with, you know, oh, by the way, look at Genesis 18. You know, there's a baby announcement there, and then it's followed up by destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. What is the connection? Well, the connection is the justice of God. The connection is how just is God? And the, the God makes the connection for us between this relating of the birth announcement to Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham will be the source of the blessing on the earth. And from him will come all of the, the blessings on the earth. And he will, have, he will be the father of a great nation. And so that he knows how just I am, let's have this discussion. Because I want him to tell all of his descendants... How just I am. And so he allows Abraham to bargain with him. And so God is is standing there and says, I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, that's my nephew's address. Well, God, you're not going to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. And God says... Well, what are you thinking? He doesn't really say that in the text, but he allows Abraham to go on and negotiate. 50, 45, 40. He's like going down. He's like, you know, in the marketplace. He's working God down. Look in this passage of Genesis 18, verse 25. Far be it from you, this is Abraham talking to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. But Abraham doesn't stop there. He wants to know, how just are you? Fifty? Okay. Let's take it all the way down to ten. Are you so just that you will not destroy a whole city for the sake of just ten righteous people in that city? God says, no. I will not destroy the city for the sake of ten people. And then is that crazy story where the two men that came with God to Abraham go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're the two angels that have been sent to destroy the whole city. Now, I don't think Lot had any idea that these angels had this kind of power. But angels are like that. And they come in and they tell Lot, go and warn all the people that you can because this city is going to be destroyed. The watchers have come. They said, warn the wicked. Lot goes out and tries to persuade all of his people. Tries to persuade his daughter's fiancés. And their response is laughter, ridicule. You're crazy. Nothing's going to happen. Look at this city. We're safe. We're rich. We're wealthy. We've got everything going for us. Finally, the angel said, it's time to go. They grab Lot and his two daughters and his wife by the hand and drag them out from the city. His wife... Is not convinced. She's looking back at the city. She turns to a pillar of salt. Lot and his two daughters ask, You oh, know, it, it, this is such a long journey. It's so far. I'm so tired. Can we just stay in this little city called Zor? See, it's so small. Can't you spare this? Fine, stay in this city. Stay in Zor. We won't destroy Zor. So they drop the three whiners off in Zor and they destroy everything else. The next thing we see is that Lot and his two daughters are in a cave up in the mountains. They saw the fire coming down. They said, we're not staying in Zor. We're, We're getting out of here. And so they headed up to the mountains. And you know the rest of the story. The three righteous people that had to be dragged out of the city now sleep together. Incest. That's how just God is. That even with a smidgen of justice... Or even with a smidgen of righteousness, that that to all of our observations think they got nothing. They got no righteousness. And yet God drags those three people out before He destroys the city. And so, as we stand before God, and He tells the watchers and the watched that you will give an account, we will be giving an account before the judge of all the earth who will do what's right. So if you do what's right, it will be a source of joy. But if you don't, it'll be an occasion for groaning. And this is the, the recommendation that he's giving to those that are under the leaders of the church. To think about the situation in which they find themselves. That they will be standing before the judge of all the earth. they will giving an account for your behavior. Let that be... An opportunity for joy and not for groaning. One of the favorite words of the writers of the Hebrews is impossible. In fact, impossible shows up five times in the New Testament and four times in Hebrews. So all the other New Testament writers use impossible five times. The writer to Hebrews uses it four times. He likes this word. Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sins. Hebrews eleven six. 6, it's impossible to please God without faith. And then he gives two conditions that you demonstrate your faith by. One, you believe that God exists. Okay, that's pretty easy. And then the next one is that you must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, that always seemed to be kind of a, a strange combination. You know, you have to demonstrate faith in these two ways. Believe that God exists and that he's a rewarder. This goes back to the idea of standing before the bema seat, of giving an account. You must believe that this just God punishes wicked wickedness. That's an encouragement. Don't wreak vengeance because vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. But also that you will be rewarded. Why is it necessary to believe that you will be rewarded by God in order to please Him? Some people say, you know, I don't do it for the rewards. I do it because I love Jesus. Well, you're in trouble because you can't please God with that attitude alone. You have to believe that he's going to reward you. It says that in Hebrews. It says it's impossible to please God if you don't believe that he exists and that he will reward you. Because frankly, there is a lot of stuff that we do as Christians that no one knows about. In fact, we're told, make sure no one knows about it. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so, again, the idea of reward, the idea of being um, vindicated by a just judge, is the undertone here for what's going on with these recommendations to these people that are to submit. In verse 18, he switches from reminding them about what their leaders are going to, to very appropriately saying, Pray for us. Pray for us. Here the writer includes himself with these leaders. Everything he's just described about the leaders, he's applying to himself. He's been away from them. He's coming back to them. At least he's praying for being able to come back to them. And he's asking them, Pray for us. For we are sure, and here's the same word, Remember he said, be persuaded by your leaders. He's saying we are persuaded, we are confident that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And here he is referring in part back to the original leaders because there's a word that, that links the two. The idea is that consider their walk and the outcome of that, their consistent life and testimony. And then we are confident that we have also done the same thing. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. This idea of having a clear conscience is a key concept for the writer. It shows up in other places in the letter as well. Desiring to act honorably on all things, just like the original leaders have done. And then he switches from the plural, us, to I. And now he makes a final appeal for prayer for himself. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, what? Pray for me in order that I may be restored. He's been with them before. He's gone away. He wants to come back. The interesting thing to me about this is that the recipients of this letter knew who wrote it. Why we don't, I have no idea. But he was wanting to come back to them. He wanted to be restored to them. And he asked them to pray. And I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now here is the introduction to a whole big long sermon on prayer and the providence of God. I'm not going to do that. But in theology we have what we call a paradox. A paradox is when you have two doctors sorry a paradox is when you have two doctrines and they're both true the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God your father knows what you have need of before you even ask him he knows when a sparrow falls he knows the number of hairs on your head he knows everything he's in control of everything nothing happens outside of God's control no one can say, Daniel says, no one can say, what are you doing? Because he doesn't have to answer to anybody. He doesn't answer to anyone. That's his sovereignty. And then, the other doctrine, the other teaching is pray. Talk to God. Tell him what you want. And this author is telling people, pray earnestly so that I will be restored to you sooner. So here, somehow, prayer is included within the sovereign plan of God. And people have tried very heroically to try to bring those two doctrines together. But it's a paradox. The Bible teaches both, but doesn't explain how the two come together. And you can make your best guess at how the two come together, but usually what happens is somebody denies all or part of one or the other. Either God doesn't really want us to pray, or God is not really sovereign. And then you can bring them together, but you're not bringing them together anymore. You've obliterated one of them in order to resolve the tension. The Bible leaves it as a tension. and says, pray, I'm in control. And somehow, God is smart enough to include our prayers within his sovereign plan. And we don't have to understand it to be able to obey it. And what this writer here is telling his people is that you need to pray so that I can be restored to you. God hears your prayers. God works through your prayers. And you need to pray so that I can be restored to you. And that's his his last appeal to them. Pray for me so that I can be restored to you. Why? Why is he so concerned about being restored to them? Because he's a watcher. He is one who is never asleep, who is always thinking and praying and caring for them. And I want to come back so that I can watch over you in person. And so as you think about your own responsibility as a watcher, remember that you are under the care of a just God who sees all and knows all. But you have been given a lot of responsibility and ask God for help with that. If you're under someone else's care, think about what situation they find themselves in and the things that they're being uh, grieved by and encouraged and excited by. And give them reasons to report with joy instead of with groaning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that you watch over us tirelessly, Without sleeping. And that you have our good in mind at all times. And we pray that we would in fact be persuaded by that. And that we would in fact submit ourselves to you as the perfect watcher. Help those of us who are responsible for the souls of others. To be tireless. To be faithful. To have a conscience that is clear. A walk that is commendable so that we can give an account for those under us with joy and not with groaning and in our spheres where we submit to those that are over us we pray for them we pray that we would be You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org